0: 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe, you believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would not have told you that I'm going to a place, uh, that I would not have told you that I'm going to a place to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place, you know where I'm going. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's word. Today is Celebration Sunday here at RCL, and we're celebrating our church's sixth birthday. We're thanking God for all he's done over the past six years. And we're also looking forward to what he's gonna do in the years to come. We have a party as I've mentioned after our service and it's meant to be a day of celebration, a day of joy, a day to celebrate God's work in and through this church family. And yet, if I'm honest, there have been many moments this week where I've struggled to feel celebratory. And I know that some of you have too. As I've been talking with some of you this past week, this has actually been a season of, for many, sadness and anger and pain and weariness. Some of you that I've talked to this week have expressed to me your grief over the loss of the queen. She has been a fixture, a constant presence, something stable in a world that is ever-changing. And now that she has died, and the nation prepares for her funeral tomorrow, many are asking, what can we rely on? What can we actually depend on? What can we look to? Death is ever the great disruptor, and the queen's death has for many caused a sense of disruption. On the other hand, unrelated to the queen, as many of you are also aware, uh, on 5 September, a 24-year-old black man was shot and killed by the police. His name is Chris Cabba. And that just happened in South London, a community that some of you live in. And as that's happened, many, including but not only the black community in our city, are grieving and are angry and are crying out for justice, for accountability, and for change. And then much closer to home, you know, right here in our church family, over the past few days, I've talked to leaders in our church who have experienced bereavement, family members, very close family members who have passed away. There are some who are not here today because they're bedridden with serious illness that came out of nowhere. There are more private things that I don't or others don't even know about that you bring to this place today that you are weighed down by, grief that you bear, pain that maybe is harder because no one sees it. So, as we come together today, we're going to have a party and there is going to be fun, but I'll be the first to say, My heart is a little troubled, and maybe yours is too. Maybe we, like the disciples, need more than ever these very words of Jesus when he said to them, Don't let your heart be troubled. And it actually is in God's kindness and providence that we're looking at John 14 today. We planned to preach on this text months ago, long before any of the things that I've just described had happened. And yet God knew. And so God in his wisdom is leading us as a church to John 14. And here's one of the reasons why I think this is so important. And one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. Because in Christianity, I have found unparalleled resources to be a person who can experience sorrow and joy at the same time. Life is like that, isn't it? There's something to celebrate and there's something that breaks your heart and sometimes those two texts come in five minutes apart. And the question for all of us, not just if you're a Christian or a spiritual person, is how do you live in a world that is both wonderful and heartbreaking all the time, often at the same time? Jesus tells us. This passage is taking place on the very night before Jesus's death. And Jesus is giving his disciples teaching about what it means to be a community who can have sorrow and joy at the same time. Or to say it the way an old pastor used to say, a Christian is someone who can laugh even when there are tears in their eyes. How do we do that? Jesus tells us. John chapter 14. So, I want to show you today in our sermon, and actually, this will be a more brief sermon because, as I say, we have a party to get to. But in this passage, Jesus shows us three things that we need to see if we're going to be people who can celebrate and grieve, if we can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to see first the cause for troubled hearts, second, the promise that Jesus gives. And then third, how that promise can heal. The cause for troubled hearts, a promise, and how that promise can heal your life. So first, what is the cause for the troubled hearts? Well, look with me if if you would again, verse one. Jesus says to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. The only time you say to a person, don't let your heart be troubled, is if you know there's a lot of troubling things going on in their world. And Jesus knows what's troubling these disciples. But before we get there, let me say, and this is really significant, the word heart in the New Testament, the word heart in the Bible, doesn't just mean your feelings. You know, sometimes we use the word heart to describe feelings. Oh, I heart you. You know, I love, I feel something for you. But in the Bible, the word heart is actually much more fundamental. It speaks of the very core of your person. It's the center, it's the place from which everything flows out. Your feelings, but also your rationality, your emotions, every part of you. So what Jesus is saying is to the disciples, I know that right now you are shaken in your core. That in the very depth of your soul, something feels off. What's the cause? What is it that's causing their hearts to be troubled? We need to see it because actually, even though the circumstances are a little different, the principles are the very same things that cause our hearts to be troubled today. Let me show you a couple. First, the disciples are troubled because they know that change and disruption is coming. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus said something to the disciples like this. He says, I will be with you only a little bit longer. Where I'm going, you cannot follow. And the disciples, in hearing that, don't fully process or grasp what Jesus is saying. Throughout this evening, as Jesus is talking to his friends, he's going to say enigmatic stuff like that, and they're not going to fully get it. But what they can piece together is something fundamental is about to change in our relationship with this person, Jesus, who's standing right now in front of us. Change and disruption is coming. Something was coming into their life to disrupt the very fabric and the pattern, the very normal that they had loved and gotten used to. And disruptive change is one of the main reasons why our hearts are often troubled. Sometimes change is good, welcomed, we rejoice in it, but most of the time change is actually really hard, especially unwelcome change, job loss, the death of someone that you love, The death of someone that you were very close to or the death of someone that you wanted to be close to but never had the chance. Friends, leave this ever-transient city. We have expectations and hopes of things that we want to see happen in our lives. And as each year goes on, it seems like they never will. Disappointment comes when disruption and chains crashes down into our life. And when that happens, what can result is the ground beneath you feels very wobbly. You feel like you have nothing stable to stand on. That's where the disciples were this night. They didn't fully get what Jesus was saying, but they knew enough to know something is going to change and it's going to be hard. And they were troubled. Another reason why their hearts were troubled, not just change and disruption, but also let's call this people failure. The disciples were about to watch some of the closest people around them fail them. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus tells Peter Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, Peter was not just a disciple, he was the leader of the disciples. He was a leader of leaders. And Jesus looks at the guy in charge, basically, and says, You're going to fail. And the other disciples are thinking, Oh my goodness, if Peter's not able to stand, what hope is there for us? And so, what happened in this community was a crisis of leadership the people that were supposed to lead them, the authority figures that were supposed to represent them, didn't. And that failure of leadership, that human failure, was causing them to be very troubled. And we experience that, whether it's leaders in our church, leaders in our city, leaders in our world, or even just friends around you. When there's leadership failure, when there's crisis of people who are in authority, it can make your hearts troubled. It questions, it causes you to question the very things and the relationships that you so deeply depended on. That's what's going on this very night, people failure. And then third, and maybe most fundamental of all, why are the disciples' hearts troubled? Well, simply said, they just can't make sense of what God is doing. They don't understand why God would allow what he's allowing. Jesus keeps talking about, I'm going to leave, I'm going to go, you can't come with me. And literally in 12 hours, the disciples will know what that means. Jesus will be hanging on the cross. And the disciples are looking at all of this and saying, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't compute. This does not line up with our expectations. Jesus was supposed to be a hero, a king. He was supposed to conquer Rome. He was supposed to give us our freedom. And he keeps talking about leaving and dying and dying in a scandalous, shameful way. They could not make sense of what God was up to. And many times, friends, in your life, if you're a Christian, a follower of God, you will go through seasons where you look at what God is doing and you have no idea what he's up to. That's actually been the story for many people who have followed God. One of my favorite examples of this is the prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Habakkuk was someone who followed God at a time when his people were experiencing incredible injustice. They were forsaking God and there was evil in the community. And so Habakkuk cries out to God and he says, Where are you? What are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. And when God does respond to Habakkuk, many of you know the story, Habakkuk's problems only intensify. God speaks, but what God says only makes matters worse for Habakkuk. And his questions are even more deep. In other words, the story of Habakkuk is the story of someone who cannot reconcile how what he believes about God fits in with the world and the experience of his life. Have you ever been there? Have you ever found yourself like these disciples troubled because you can't make sense of what God is doing? That's why their hearts are troubled tonight. That's why your heart might be troubled today. People around you, maybe you yourself, failing, falling short. Expectations that you have about ways that the world should go or the way your life should go, but change and disruption keep coming. And ultimately and fundamentally, you just can't see what God is up to. That's where these disciples were. But Jesus says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. We might translate that, don't let your hearts be too troubled. Some of that is inevitable. But what Jesus now gives is a promise, a promise that we'll ultimately see can heal troubled hearts. But what is the promise that Jesus gives? Well, look with me, verses two and three. Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms. If you're a Londoner, you're saying amen to that. (laughs) Many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now I say this is the promise of Jesus, but actually it's three promises. They're all kind of about the same thing, but there's really three promises baked in here. Do you see what they are? Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and I will take you to be with me. That's Jesus' promise to his disciples. And if I had to summarize that threefold promise in one sentence, do you know what Jesus is saying? Guys, I know your hearts are troubled. But here's my promise, I'm gonna bring you home. I'm gonna bring you home. That's the promise that Jesus gives. Now what is home? You know, Many of us have very varied and hard experiences of what home was. Maybe when I say the word home, what comes into your mind is not peace and joy but even some anxiety. Others have had better experiences but for all of us I think we can agree, home is meant to be wonderful. Home should be beautiful. Home actually is hard to define. It's almost more of an experience than it is a thing or a place. But if I had to try to give some definition or some description of what home is, here's what I would say. Home is the place where and with whom you belong. Home is the place where and with whom you belong. It's a place for fulfillment. It's the place where you can be yourself Where you're complete. Home is a place that doesn't just give you shelter for survival, but it gives you love and comfort for fulfillment. When you come home, you don't knock. You don't say, can I come in? You belong there. Home is the place and the people with which you belong. Not only is that home, but home also is a place that fits you. You know, some of you travel a lot for work and you know, even if you stay in the nicest hotels in the world, it's not quite home. Home is the place where everything is arranged just so. You have your programmable coffee maker, that's me. Uh, You have all the things that, that, that just are tailored to you. It fits you. You're not uncomfortable there. You feel instantly at home when you walk through that door fits. You fit. Home is a place of safety. Your guard comes down. You can be yourself, sometimes warts and all. And you know that as you're yourself, you'll still be loved and received. And because of that, your fears are banished. That's home. That's the home we want. And what Jesus says to these disciples in the midst of their troubled heart, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to come back and I'm gonna take you to where I am and we're gonna be home together forever. Now, this longing for home is a fundamental part of human existence. It's not just true for Christians, it's true for every single person that walks in our city and walks in our world. We're longing for home. We're longing for a world made right. We're longing for a place that fits us, a place that we're safe in, a place and a people with which we belong. Everybody wants that. The, narveli- uh, not the novelist Carson McCullers put it this way in one of her great books. She says, It's a curious emotion, this certain homesickness that I have in mind. It's no simple longing for the hometown or the country of our birth. This emotion, this homesickness, is actually two faced. We are torn between nostalgia for the familiar and an urge for the foreign and the strange. As often as not, we're homesick most for the places that we've never known. The whole story of humanity is a longing for home. It's been like that since our first parents walked around on this earth. Some of you know the story that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they rebelled against God, they chose self instead of God. That's what sin is, by the way. And as a result, what came crashing down into their world was a deep sense of homesickness. They lost home. Fundamentally, they lost closeness to God. The intimacy, the ultimate intimacy with which their souls were built for. And they hid from God. Not only did they lose God, but also they lost their relationships with each other. No sooner does sin come into the world, this sense of homesickness, that actually Adam and Eve are blame-shifting and alienated and there's division in human relationship and ultimately they even lost a sense of peace within themselves when sin comes into the world the Bible says that we feel shame that we're actually not comfortable in our own skin we feel a need to cover and to protect and not reveal who we really are that's our homesickness and that started in the very beginning And the history of the world has been people trying to find ways to get back home. And do you see why Jesus' promise is so incredible? Because he says, you can't get home on your own, but I've come to bring you home. I've come to heal your troubled hearts with a promise that what you couldn't do for yourself, I've come to do for you. So let's see now as we close our sermon, how does this promise heal? That's the promise Jesus gives. I'm going to bring you home. How can it heal your life? How can it be a comfort for you today? Does it do anything for troubled hearts? And the answer is yes. One of the things that Christians are meant to do, and if you're not a Christian, I invite you to try this on today to consider it. One of the things that Christians are meant to do is live in this world with their eyes fixed on the next one. We're meant to live in two worlds. We're meant to be fully present and engaged here on earth, in London, in this city. But our hearts are also meant to be tethered or connected to heaven, to God's kingdom. We're meant to be a people who live in between two worlds. And what's supposed to happen for the Christian is that the promises of your future are meant to reshape and reorient your present. Christians are meant to be people who live today as those who know what's coming in their future. And that hope, that promise, that future coming good changes everything about how we face today. I'll give you an example. Some of you have heard me say this before. I really don't like camping. I've been a few times, I've paid my dues, but it's just not my thing. I would much prefer to look at mountains from sitting on a sofa than sleeping in those very same mountains. But as I say, I've been camping a few times. And I don't mean, by the way, British camping, where you walk from pub to pub, you know, on mostly flat ground. I mean real camping. I've been a few times, and the times that I've done some camping, even though it wouldn't be something that I would have chosen necessarily, I've had a good time, I can enjoy it, I can fully immerse myself in the experience, I can embrace the challenge, build friendships with others that I'm traveling with, I can make the best of it, even though it's not my preference. Why? Because I know that it's not permanent. Because I know that eventually I'm going to go home. And the promise of home frees me to enjoy and to fully engage in experience that might otherwise drive me bonkers. What Jesus is saying is if you really know what's coming, the promise of home, the promise of the kingdom frees you to engage and to be more present on earth than you could have ever imagined. The moment you stop looking to this earth and to London and even ultimately to the people and things around you to give you everything your soul needs, then you're actually more free to fully love and engage and serve in this great city, and with the people around you. The promise of home frees us to be more present here, to be more engaged here. Sometimes when I talk to people about the kingdom of God or heaven, people think that what Christians are talking about is a kind of escapism. Just bury your head, ignore the problems, ignore the challenges or even the injustices in our world, and just hang on till heaven. But friends, do you see? That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not encouraging at all a kind of escapism. He's calling his disciples to be more present because their hearts are so fixed on what's coming in their future. Once you stop looking to this world to give you everything that only God can give, finally you're free to enjoy this world for all it has to offer and to actually see brokenness and move towards it to heal and to serve. In one of the most beautiful paragraphs I've ever read outside of the Bible, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking. It's one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean we leave this present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next Christians throughout history have left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Jesus says, I've come to bring you home. That's your future. And when you know that, when your heart is weighed down in grief and trouble, hope comes crashing in, not to minimize or ignore the pain, but to relativize it and to reorient your perspective. For others of you, you're going through a great season of life. Everything is just as you hope it would be. The promise of home helps you to not hold on too tightly to things that can all of a sudden slip through your grasp. This promise can help us to be free, to enjoy, and to serve God because we know our hearts are in heaven. Finally, how do we get there? Look again at verse 1 and verse 6. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That word could also be translated trust. Not just believe in, trust in me. Surrender yourself to me, Jesus says give yourself to me completely. You can't trust in others. Sometimes you can't even trust yourself, but Jesus has trust in me. And then in verse six, he says, when Thomas asks, how do we get there? Jesus says, I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And this is really key. Jesus doesn't say, I've come to show you the way. Jesus isn't like the person you might find on the street and ask for directions and they say, oh yeah, go down here, make a left, go over there. That's the way to your destination. Jesus doesn't come giving directions. He says, I am your transport. I will bring you home. Trust in me. How can we trust in him? Look to the cross. On the cross, we see Jesus giving everything up for you. He surrendered everything. He shows you his love And the Apostle Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He is the way, the truth, and the life. Trust him. Give yourself to him. The cross tells you all you need to know about his love. Look to the cross, trust in him, and believe his promise that he's gonna bring you home. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for John 14 and the way it meets us in our troubled heartness. Be with us now as we respond. Help us to experience and to encounter your truth, not just to know it in our heads, but to feel it in our hearts. Because some of us today, God, are really troubled. Some of us are weighed down. We need your promise to break in and to liberate us. We need hope from beyond the walls of this world. So speak to us now by the power of your spirit. May we know that home is coming. And may we rest in Jesus who gave up all for us. We pray this together in his name. Amen.